0: and Julian Paul Butt. Every however many years, an author or authors releases a book that claims to finally tell the human story from prehistory to the modern world the way it was meant to be told. Storytellers have been taking up this task since before a bunch of Iron Age shepherds in the Levant cooked up the story that the universe was created in six days by an all-powerful deity and that humans lived a blissful garden life until a snake and a woman ruined it for everyone. Each of these ambitious, sweeping books quickly become the one book that everyone absolutely needs to read, a book that is expected to change everything about how humans see themselves. Most of these books are read, or only half-read sometimes, and forgotten almost immediately. A few manage to linger for a while. The rarest take their place in our cultural library. Three recent authors whose books have made our collective shortlist were Jared Diamond with Guns, Germs, and Steel published in 1997 and The World Until Yesterday published in 2012, Steven Pinker with The Better Angels of Our Nature published in 2012 as well, and Yuval Noah Harari who wrote Sapiens and that was published in 2015. It's not an accident that I made an example of these three extremely popular authors. In The Dawn of Everything, the late David Graeber and David Wingro, not late Wingro, alive still David Wingro, engage with the works of each of these three authors explicitly. To put a blunt point on it, Graeber and Wingro think that Diamond, Pinker, and Harari have got it wrong, or at least they think that Diamond, Pinker, and Harari might not be completely right. In The Dawn of Everything, they argue adamantly that the stories told in those other books are only partially correct often out of date with current research, and in some cases, simply flawed. This excerpt from The Dawn of Everything outlines the problem that Graeber and Wingrove see in the way the human story has been told, as well as what they think the solution might be. Most of human history is
1: irreparably lost to us. Our species, Homo sapiens, has existed for at least 200,000 years. But for most of that time, we have next to no idea what was happening. In northern Spain, for instance, at the Cave of Altamira, paintings and engravings were created over a period of at least 10,000 years, between around 25,000 and 15,000 BC. Presumably, a lot of dramatic events occurred during this period. We have no way of knowing what most of them were. This is of little consequence to most people, since most people rarely think about the broad sweep of human history anyway. They don't have much reason to. Insofar as the question comes up at all, it's usually when reflecting on why the world seems to be in such a mess and why human beings so often treat each other badly. The reasons for war, greed, exploitation, systematic indifference to others' suffering. Were we always like that, or did something, at some point, go terribly wrong? It is basically a theological debate. Essentially, the question is are humans innately good or innately evil? But if you think about it, the question, framed in these terms, makes very little sense. Good and evil are purely human concepts. It would never occur to anyone to argue about whether a fish or a tree were good or evil, because good and evil are concepts humans made up in order to compare ourselves with one another. It follows that arguing about whether humans are fundamentally good or evil makes about as much sense as arguing about whether humans are fundamentally fat or thin. Nonetheless, on those occasions when people do reflect on the lessons of prehistory, they almost invariably come back to the questions of this kind. We are all familiar with the Christian answer. People once lived in a state of innocence, yet were tainted by original sin. We desire to be godlike and have been punished for it. Now we live in a fallen state while hoping for future redemption. Today, the popular version of the story is typically some updated variation on Jean-Jacques Rousseau's discourse on the origin and the foundation of inequality among mankind, which he wrote in 1754. Once upon a time, the story goes, we were hunter-gatherers, living in a prolonged state of childlike innocence in tiny bands. These bands were egalitarian, They could be for the very reason that they were so small. It was only after the agricultural revolution, and then still more the rise of cities, that this happy condition came to an end, ushering in civilization and the state, which also meant the appearance of written literature, science, and philosophy. But at the same time, almost everything bad in human life, patriarchy, standing armies, mass executions, and annoying bureaucrats demanding that we spend much of our lives filling in forms. Of course, this is a very crude simplification, but it really does seem to be the foundational story that rises to the surface whenever anyone, from industrial psychologists to revolutionary theorists, says something like, but of course human beings spent most of their evolutionary history being in groups of 10 or 20 people. Or... Agriculture was perhaps humanity's worst mistake, and as we'll see, many popular writers make the argument quite explicitly. The problem is that anyone seeking an alternative to this rather depressing view of history will quickly find that the only one on offer is actually even worse. If not Rousseau, then Thomas Hobbes. Hobbes' Leviathan, published in 1651, is in many ways the founding text of modern political theory. It held that, humans being the selfish creatures they are, life in an original state of nature was in no sense innocent. It must instead have been solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Basically, a state of war, with everybody fighting against everybody else. Insofar as there has been any progress from this benighted state of affairs, A Hobbesian would argue it has been largely due to exactly those repressive mechanisms that Rousseau was complaining about. Governments, courts, bureaucracies, police. This view of things has been around for a very long time as well. There's a reason why, in English, the words politics, polite, police, all sound the same. They're all derived from the Greek word polis, or city, the Latin equivalent of which is civitas, which also gives us civility, civic, and certain modern understanding of civilization. Human society, in this view, is founded on the collective repression of our baser instincts, which becomes all the more necessary when humans are living in large numbers in the same place. The modern-day Hobbesian, then, would argue that yes, we did live most of our evolutionary history in tiny bands, who could get along mainly because they shared a common interest in the survival of their offspring, parental investment, as evolutionary biologists call it. But even these were in no sense founded on equality. There was always, in this version, some alpha male leader. Hierarchy and domination and cynical self-interest have always been the basis of human society. It's just that... Collectively, we have learned it's to our advantage to prioritize our long-term interests over our short-term instincts, or, better, to create laws that force us to confine our worst impulses to socially useful areas like the economy, while forbidding them everywhere else. As the reader can probably detect from our tone, we don't much like the choice between these two alternatives our objections can be classified into three broad categories. As accounts of the general course of human history, they 1. Simply aren't true. 2. Have dire political implications. 3. Make the past needlessly dull. This book is an attempt to begin to tell another, more hopeful and more interesting story, one which, at the same time, takes better account of what the last few decades of research have taught us. Partly, this is a matter of bringing together evidence that has accumulated in archaeology, anthropology, and kindred disciplines, evidence that points towards a completely new account of how human societies developed over roughly the last 30,000 years. Almost all of this research goes against the familiar narrative, but too often, the most remarkable discoveries remain confined to the work of specialists, or have to be teased out by reading between the lines of scientific publications. To give just a sense of how different the emerging picture is, it is clear now that human societies before the advent of farming were not confined to small egalitarian bands. On the contrary, the world of hunter-gatherers as it existed before the coming of agriculture was one of bold social experiments, resembling a carnival parade of political forms, far more than it does the drab abstractions of evolutionary theory. Agriculture, in turn, did not mean the inception of private park property, nor did it mark an irreversible step towards inequality. In fact, many of the first farming communities were relatively free of ranks and hierarchies and far from setting class differences in stone, a surprising number of the world's earliest cities were organized on robustly egalitarian lines, with no need for authoritarian rulers, ambitious warrior politicians, or even bossy administrators. Information bearing on such issues has been pouring in from every quarter of the globe. As a result, Researchers around the world have also been examining ethnographic and historical material in a new light. The pieces now exist to create an entirely different world history, but so far they remain hidden to all but a few privileged experts, and even the experts tend to hesitate before abandoning their own tiny part of the puzzle to compare notes with others outside their specific subfield. Our aim in this book is to start putting some of the pieces of the puzzle together, in full awareness that nobody yet has anything like a complete set. The task is immense, and the isu- issues so important that it will take years of research and debate even to begin to understand the real implications of the picture we're starting to see. But it's crucial that we set the process in motion. One thing that will quickly become clear is that the prevalent big picture of history shared by modern day followers of hobbes and rousseau alike have has almost nothing to do with the facts but to begin making sense of the new information that's now before our eyes it is not enough to compile and sift vast quantities of data a conceptual shift is also required to make that shift means retracting some of the initial steps that led to our modern notion of social evolution The idea that human societies could be arranged according to stages of development, each with their own characteristic technologies and forms of organization, hunter-gatherers, farmers, urban industrial society, and so on. As we will see, some notions have their roots in a conservative backlash against critiques of European civilization, which began to gain ground in the early decades of the 18th century. The origins of that critique, however, not, lie not with the philosophers of the Enlightenment, much though they initially admired and imitated it, but with indigenous commentators and observers of European society, such as the Native American Huron Wendat statesman
0: Kjong Diorong. Graeber and Wingro tell a compelling story about how our common ideas about human social development are incorrect, how these flawed versions got so popular, and what some of the more recent research and archaeological studies tell us. They also clearly set out to ensure that no one suspects them of simply telling their own newer, fresher version of the human story when they say, The task is immense, and the issue is so important that it will take years of research and debate even to begin to understand the real implications of the picture we're starting to see. Clearly, Graber and Wingrow are in no way making a claim that they've written the last words on this enormous topic. We should all take this as stern advice to apply the same caution to every fantastically popular story about the evolution of human society. Each one is only true until the next archaeological dig turns up something that contradicts it.
1: A Taxonomy of Errors Let's crack this open with some lefty vernacular. Anarchism is a set of praxis and ideals that all aim to work towards a civilization where the institutions are not hierarchical in other words, without social stratification, or, in other words, a stateless, direct democracy where all decisions of communities are made by and for themselves, without the control of external, centralized institutions. Instead of statesmen making decisions for communities, the communities themselves vote on policy. Imagine participatory neighborhood assemblies instead of politicians. Like Sean mentioned last episode, I too don't identify with the specific ideology per se. But I do subscribe to the simple premises that institutions that are operated by direct democracy are ideal, and that social structures that are decentralized, pluralistic, and that maximize autonomy are the most free, which is the quality in these that I view as most beneficial to the most people involved. This is most broadly understood as the praxis and ideologies of anarchism, but anarchism has 21 flavors. We could discuss such strains of anarchism as anarcho-syndicalism, uh, libertarian communism, communalism, and so on. Each one differs on its praxis, or the prescribed end game, or both, but all agree that civilization is best organized along decentralized, directly democratic, pluralistic bases which maximize community and individual autonomy. Simply put, anarchism is the umbrella under which we find all political and economic philosophies that advocate a means and ends towards direct democracy in all social spheres, whether community organization, the workplace. Obviously, anarchism is not synonymous with enemy or chaos, despite present-day popular use of the term anarchy and with no help from the likes of the Sex Pistols. Likewise, the popular use of socialism and communism have been so abused that all three terms are essentially useless words. But we may as well address these, since they're ubiquitously used in this book, and I will use them just as liberally. Socialism, as I will use it here, means the democratic control by the community, the employees of the company, or both, of the means of production such as fields, factories, stores, and so on. Some forms of socialism in name extend to democratic control of the means of production to state control of the same, but I, I don't think this is an accurate understanding of democratic control. Either way, anarchism and communism are under the umbrella of of socialism. By this definition, I consider the Mondragon Corporation, a massive worker cooperative federation in Spain, as a form of socialism as much as I do the stateless democracy of the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria. I would not consider the USSR a form of socialism or communism. Communism, spelled with a little c, is a stateless, classless society where the means of production are owned and operated by the community in a non-market economy, This means no money, no state, no centralization, and no markets where goods and services are organized from each according to their ability to each according to their need. It's a form of socialism and a form of anarchism because it's without hierarchical institutions, but it's it's specific because anarchism has some market forms, whereas communism explicitly does not, and so does socialism more broadly. Obviously, the well-known socialist and communist states of the 20th century were neither socialist nor communist by this taxonomy, not as a no-true Scotsman argument, but as a matter of the simple fact that they were not democratically controlled economic systems. And in the case of communism, a communist state is an oxymoron. These terms are well to be addressed, too, because David Graeber has been vilified for his association with anarchism, with no relationship whatsoever to the quality of his academic works. His works have been disparaged because of his subscription to the ideas of direct democracy and visible, visible participation in the Occupy movement. He got a lot of shit for that. And we've observed this phenomenon with other authors and academics such as Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn. What's the point of talking about semantics, especially for terms that have been abused so much that they're almost not worth using? This isn't pedantic nitpicking about obscure lefty lexicon. These words and the ideologies that use them have been center stage in the course of events during the 19th and 20th centuries, and the dialogues about them aren't confined to political science lecture halls, and the abuse of these terms, or at least the ideologies that use them, have influenced otherwise sober,
0: serious research in fields from anthropology to biology. This whole conversation is right along the tracks of are right along right in the same area as people who try to tell you what a fascist is. <laughs> yeah, if you're left leaning, it's anything you don't like is fascistic at this point.
1: Well, I just call anybody
0: that I disagree with fascist. I mean, so that I, keeps it simple for me. And if you're yeah, and if you're if you're right leaning, anything you don't like is Marxist. <laughs> that's just basically that's just how it goes at this point and we end up with this sort of oatmeal language where nobody can ever talk about anything because everybody's forgotten what all the words mean they just reach for the top shelf for every term
1: although it's perhaps a faux pas to mention his name today uh there's a louis ck oh, no. bit
0: here it comes <laughs> oh louis ck <laughs> are you gonna tell me a masturbation story? Uh, no, but the story might be masturbative. Uh, uh, Julian is currently forcing me to watch him unbutton his pants. <laughs> I really feel like there's a power dynamic at play right here that I am not allow- Where I am not allowed to say no. <laughs> so Louis
1: C.K. has his bit where he's talking about <laughs> the word hilarious and how people go uh, go for these terms and they use the most extreme term, and, he, and in, in the bit. He's talking about when somebody thinks to bring solo cups to a party dude you're a genius
0: uh-huh right uh, like I have an example of that as well it's when somebody uh you you're you're short of uh you're short a couple of pennies or something like that at a convenience store and the the clerk behind the counter you know reaches over and like taps the need a penny leave a penny uh dish. And you say, that's awesome. As if that really did inspire awe inside of you in that moment. You know, sort of like seeing a burning bush. Right, like seeing two rainbows over the Grand Canyon and a meteor coming down at the same time. The two pennies in the dish inspired the equal an equal amount of awe inside of you. I'm guilty of that too. I say awesome all the time. It's one of my favorite words. awesome possum that is an awe-inspiring possum
1: (laughs) the dawn of everything itself is largely a pushback against some cliched one-liner rebuttals that seem to be repeated without fail when stateless democracy or democratic ownership of the means of production are discussed such tropes include a generalization about human nature being inherently evil or selfish Something about how inequality and hierarchy have always existed, or that egalitarian social structures are fine and small bands of neolithic nomads, but states and hierarchies are just an inevitable consequence of larger populations that need to be accepted, while anything else is naive fantasy. I, I think of the condescension in, in all of these that I hear every time uh, I have this discussion with almost anybody almost every time i have discussions of history or or anthropology or even more broad topics and and i and i get even within the bounds of discussing the fundamentals of what does that mean of of anything more serious than superficial talking points that you might hear on fox or cnn or something like that the second that that happens i hear something like this and it's said with such condescension but they don't have anything past the two repeated sentences that i've already heard 10,000 times
0: i don't i don't remember who said this but the the quote goes something like it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism
1: <laughs> yeah
0: people can't wrap their head around doing anything different and that that is um that is in the same sort of category as you know what you were what you were just talking about about this this generalization about human nature being inherently evil or selfish something about how inequality and hierarchy have always existed or that egalitarian social structures are fine in small bands of neolithic nomads but states and hierarchies are just an inevitable consequence of larger populations in in the dawn of everything graber and Wingro really go after that attitude uh you know that that disposition which is really just uh, just an unfounded assumption based on nothing that we these are natural results of these types you know this this size of a population group or something like that now that might be true it might be a natural result of having a very very large population group that really could be the case it also does not mean that's the only way we can do things it is also possible, at least in you know, as uh you know, in the realm of possibility, that we could do things an entirely different way, just because the things have, in an automatic, deterministic sort of fashion, developed a certain way in the in you know in these in these uh uh sometimes historical and sometimes uh prehistorical societies where we don't have written records. But we 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 figure out how they lived based on archaeological evidence. Just because it worked out that way for them doesn't mean we have to keep doing the same thing. This is a fundamental disconnect. Where they say this is what this argument is saying: egalitarian social structures are fine in small bands of Neolithic nomads. Well, what is it? But states and hierarchies are just an inevitable consequence. It is, there's nothing about this that is necessarily inevitable left to its own left a society left to its own devices may typically turn into a hierarchy as the population density increases but it doesn't necessarily have to and that's something that's really cool about this book is that there are brought back out of the journals these examples of Harappa and Mohenjo-daro where you have a society that we know relatively a little about but one thing that we can see is that there are ways that it just doesn't fit the pattern Yeah, this was a large population concentration, especially at the time, but even now, and it doesn't seem to follow that same pattern that we see in these other places. I really like that last part where you were talking about the dawn of everything being a pushback now against these cliched thoughts. That is really what I, I have taken away from the book as one of its most important messages, this necessity to question these narratives and really just reconfirm them. Ask ourselves, what is the evidence that I have to support my position about this? A lot of this is pushing against this narrative that Jared Diamond talks about in his books. Jared Diamond says something in his book, The World Until Yesterday. For all of you anarchists out there, you know, too bad because this is only possible in really small groups of people. And you're going to just have to learn to live with this hierarchy because it's an inevitable, as you just said, Julian, an inevitable consequence of large populations. I don't necessarily know that it's true, simply because I can't picture how how it would look were it to be some other way, doesn't mean it's impossible. That's the crux of everything that I'm trying to say right now in an incredibly long-winded kind of way, is that just because I can't imagine it doesn't mean it is impossible. It doesn't mean somebody else can't imagine it. And when somebody else imagines it, we should probably not dismiss it immediately or else we will never get it. Yeah. If we're just all stuck with dismissing unfamiliar ideas out of hand because I don't understand them, then essentially nothing will ever change. That is the definition of of a static society. And in a lot of ways, that's an exact description of where we find ourselves now. Any new ideas, any time we try to change anything, there is this hellacious pushback that it is is seen as this, you know, the first step or the 10th step on this slippery slide – into full-on Soviet Russia. <laughs>
1: or disastrous
0: economic and
1: social disarray. Oh,
0: everything will melt down. I, I, look at all of the major debates that we have right now. And I say major not because everybody's talking about them, because, but because they are you know, sort of turning points or potential turning points for what our society is going to look like in the next decades. Think about universal health care or Medicare for all something some kind of some kind of nationalized healthcare system, whatever the details happen to be, is viewed by some as the greatest thing that they can imagine, and they can't they the their main frustration is that it doesn't ever seem to come about. But it's viewed by everybody in opposition to it as the next thing to becoming exactly like China. I can't imagine why people are so against having good healthcare for themselves and their families. But they are because they've been convinced that this is part of this this slide into some kind of really terrible, horrific breadline type of Soviet communism. And as soon as we have healthcare, everybody is going to be suffering. And and not but literally, not, healthcare is the opposite of everybody suffering.
2: Not <laughs> that
1: the same crowd has actually read Nineteen Eighty Four, but they imagine some sort of hellish Nineteen Eighty Four picture combined with. Themselves as, as standing alone against the tyranny, like a man against a tank in Tiananmen Square. Get the fuck out of somehow here!
0: Somehow you can, somehow everybody who wants universal health care also hates their country, which is this really wild, head twisting sort of logic. You want your you want better things for yourself and your fellow citizens, like health care or some kind of a social safety net, um, a higher minimum wage, this kind of stuff. And so because you want these things that would improve people's quality of life, that means you hate the country and you hate freedom. Somehow these things are equated with being against freedom. None of these things have anything to do with the freedoms that that are codified in our Bill of Rights, None of it has anything to do with, I mean, none of it has anything to do with any of that. But somehow these things are all muddled together as if you get, you get these over here and you're basically just tipping the scale in favor of this leftist hellscape.
1: Meanwhile, it's often the same uh, crowds that, the same crowds that are supporting the increase of funding of police and military and other organs of the state that are specifically the things that if they were to repress you, would be the instruments
0: to repress you. Who do you think is coming for your guns? <laughs> I, like, exactly, like if you, if you, like if you, if you, if there is going to be any some sort of systemic repression and the removal of our the freedoms as we've come to as we've come to know them and rely upon them, like the freedom of speech and the freedom of the press and so on if those are going to get removed it's going to get removed by this enhanced police force that you're demanding <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who else is going to do it the people with the cars and the guns are going to tell you you can't do this anymore <laughs> that's who's going to come for you they want more and more police and really they they think that those that policing will never be used against them that's that's some kind of fundamental assumption that they have i don't even think about generally i don't think about the decline of society in those terms that we need to make sure we have fewer police because they could turn against us. Or That's a very confrontational view of society and confrontational view of citizens against police is understandable in a lot of quarters of our society. It's understandable that a lot of people uh, in, you know, in different areas of our society would see it that way, for sure. I think that that's something that needs to be addressed. But that's not my concern about all this extra funding going toward police my concern about the extra funding that goes toward police is that it should be spent someplace else yeah it should be spent on these on social programs it should be spent on mental health resources it should be spent on healthcare uh, on expanding our healthcare our access to the healthcare system it should be spent on improving improving housing for people and i mean that's where it should and, be spent and not on, on not on police and not on, we don't need more cops and
1: not on police getting military gear And vehicles.
0: Alright, well, with some of the requisite semantics out of the way, let's talk about the whole history of humanity. A false start.
1: 11,500 year penalty. There's long been a popular narrative about human history and the very origins of civilization as we know it. This is a story told from a cocktail of Rousseau, Hobbes, and the Garden of Eden. Despite the refinement of the scientific approach in social sciences, there has been a holdover of superstition and unexamined conclusions that persist as artifacts of an earlier time in these fields, respective investigations. From the dawn of everything.
0: Rousseau's portrayal of the state of nature and how it was overturned by the coming of agriculture was never intended to form the basis for a series of evolutionary stages, like the ones Scottish philosophers such as Smith, Ferguson, or Miller, and later on Lewis Henry Morgan, were referring to when they spoke of savagery and barbarism. In no sense was Rousseau imagining these different states of being as levels of social and moral development, corresponding to historical changes in modes of production, foraging, pastoralism, farming, industry.
1: This narrative in anthropological, ethnographic, political, historical, and other social sciences has reflected some variation on what I call progressive civilization narrative. In this context, progressive is in reference to the ideas from the age of reason rather than left of center liberalism. This narrative describes specific institutions as developing as an inevitable consequence of time, environmental conditions, or technology. The book makes it clear that there is no clear correlation or causation between environmental factors or means of production or even interaction between cultures that indicates a clear relationship with institutions that are centralized and hierarchical. In fact, while the Common Garden of Eden or Rousseauian narrative tends to suggest an idyllic time before written in agricultural history, Graeber and Wengro contradict not only the popular socialist narratives that borrow from this, especially the Marxist ones, but also the more conservative and reactionary ones. They don't simply say pre-agricultural civilizations were some utopian proto-communism, nor some sort of brutal struggle for savage survival, but instead there was and is a great diversity of social organization that has no single causal relationship with time, place, means of production, environmental factors of productive capacity, and so forth. Graeber and Wengrow list exhaustive examples of civilizations that had vastly different forms of social organization. In the fifth chapter, for example, they discuss indigenous societies on the Pacific coast of the present-day United States, which exhibited dramatically different values about freedom and social strata. There was a form of slavery and tremendous social stratification in the Pacific Northwest portion that was not seen, in fact, quite differently seen uh, as the opposite in Southern California. And they, Mm -hmm. in a way, metaphorically and physically met in the middle in Northern California, present day. These cultures interacted with each other. They were around the same times. Meanwhile, Graeber and Wengro talked quite a bit about what they called schismogenesis, where you had totally different civilizations existing alongside each other with a lot of similar variables with totally different outcomes.
0: Like what kind of different outcomes?
1: Uh, Different outcomes being that there seem to be a much greater value on uh, what we might consider egalitarian principles of social organization um, and especially self-governance in Uh those more southerly areas of the Pacific Coast that they describe in the fifth chapter. But there were way more stratified, uh, aristocratic type structures in the northern areas, especially the Pacific Northwest, that
0: Mm -hmm.
1: were, were so dissimilar from each other in terms of their principles, values, practices, and even organization. But at the same time, they were there with similar resources in terms of S- some similar opportunities to uh-huh. uh, uh, organize different means of production that we might examine or uh, similar access to knowledge and technology to be able to implement different societies.
0: He he can't help himself. He has to use Marxist terminology. An, an archaeologist would describe that more in terms of material culture, <laughs> 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 not not means of production. How dare you call me a Marxist? <laughs> that was one of the, another one of the big takeaway messages when I was reading the book. We have had this sort of parade of different social forms in the history of humanity. Sometimes it is the social form can be associated with deterministic factors, uh, environmental uh, pressures. Other neighboring groups, things like that can influence the way a society develops. But in other cases, you can't necessarily find those forcing factors. You can't find those those external influences that would determine why one group would be different than another. Now, it doesn't again, it doesn't mean that those environmental pressures are not there. Those external pressures are not there. It simply means we have not identified them. And po- so we have possible outcomes here which is really where we need to live we need to live in this era, this whole environment of possible outcomes possible causes unknown consequences from one particular set of influences or combination of them versus another you know, you were talking about the southern pacific coast groups turning out differently in their social forms than the northern pacific groups does this have something to do with the weather is there i mean if they they have relatively similar access to food and similar uh, levels of conflict with neighboring groups, but somehow they turned out terribly different. We don't really know why. Graeber and Wingro are going to say it's because they really just chose to do different things in different places. That, that's something that I talk about, I want to talk about later on. But what we really have to live with is that we might not know exactly why they ended up the way that they ended up. Maybe it was some combination of a sense of agency and desire in combination with an environmental pressure that we haven't identified. Maybe it was more of one than the other. We don't really know. Absolutely. To the credit of
1: Wengrow and Graeber, particularly in that chapter, they do discuss the some of the influences of uh, fish in certain areas compared to those two regions, um, uh-huh. and, and nuts and a number of other things. But... They essentially give the takeaway in that chapter that these really don't add up to explaining why they were so different as cultures.
0: What they're saying is that these things have been have been observed and have and documented that there were these differences between these groups. they had you know they had slightly different diets, they had access to different foods, things like that. And among other things, there may very well be differences in, you know, that they didn't mention or differences that they didn't think were important enough to mention or similarities that didn't really register as being important enough to, to note. And so that the, sto- the story of their differences of how these groups develop differently is really unfinished. We can fill in the blank with assumptions and that's totally fine. We That's a normal human shit to do. When you don't have all the facts that, uh, that you need to make a decision about something, you start adding conjecture. But you just can't treat the conjecture the same as the facts that you have. Yeah. The facts also can be held as suspect because... But conclusions about those facts are something else. You collect all this data, but then we start attributing meaning to it. And that's where it becomes entirely subjectified. You don't necessarily know that your conclusions are an accurate description of what was going on. You just have the data. You see these trash heaps of what people left behind and what their diets were, and then you draw some kind of conclusion based on that. Sometimes those conclusions are really easy to draw, but sometimes you can extrapolate things far beyond what you actually know. Graeber
1: and Wengro mention somewhere in the book the example that's... Out of fashion today, but is almost a learning lesson that is almost avoided in anthropology today to a degree of attributing everything to a fertility god or a fertility goddess, and you pick up s- s- some doll and uh it- it's shapely and immediately it's clearly a fertility goddess and some kind of an idol for. Such a thing.
0: Yeah, I forget the name of the person that they uh, that they cited in reference to this, but the person they mentioned, he wrote a uh, a lengthy paper where he is picking apart the symbolism in number of, in a number of cultures around the world. And because a a figurine was discovered in Egypt, I want to say, and it was immediately associated with some you know some sort of like fertility rites or something like that. It was a figure of a woman who's very shapely. Uh, a figurine that is the example that uh, Graeber and Wingrove cite from from this author whose name I can't remember talks about how, what all these like all these different groups all around the world and how there's such a divergence in meaning based on that se- that same sort of uh, voluptuous symbology in the feminine <laughs> feminine form. None of them agree. So basically, you know, the takeaway point is we don't know with a high degree of certainty, what people were doing when they made things like that in the past. We don't know if it was a fertility figure or if somebody was carving a figurine of their wife. We don't know what they were doing because context is so incredibly hard sometimes to figure out when you're talking about a group of people that is is three or 4,000 years removed from the modern day. We don't know how they saw the world necessarily. We only have the the scraps that have been left behind to be able to piece together something about what their worldview might have been, but it's very difficult to take away our to take our um our modern idea about things out of the equation and to try to see them just for them without adding our own values and hopes and dreams and whatever else on top of it. In many of these cases
1: Civilizations and cultures uh, that we could examine, uh, and that we do examine, were either preliterate cultures, or they simply did not have writing, or the writing that existed was totally unusable, or at least not necessarily helpful in the thing that is being examined.
0: But preliterate and not having writing is the same thing? In in some cases, writing hasn't been translated or there isn't any associated writing when we, when writing has been translated. And I also want to, I want to add something to the comment I made before. When I'm talking about this difficulty in understanding things, I'm really talking about difficulty in understanding peoples of the past. I'm, I'm referring to the average sort of person in general you know, as the person who has difficulty understanding uh, what people were motivated by in the past and what kind of symbolism they were were expressing in their works of art. I'm not really commenting so much on the state of modern archaeology, you know, as a whole or anything like that. They don't tend to fall into those traps in the same way that somebody who consumes books written by people like Steven Pinker and Jared Diamond do. Absolutely. They have that problem, much more so than somebody who's working in these fields. Absolutely. The arguments
1: of Wengro and Graeber seem to be that there are countless possibilities for social organization and institutions, and are assumptions about the inevitability and linear progress from a lesser stage of development to a greater stage of development, moralistic, technological, complexity, and other features, are not only contradicted by the archaeological record, especially in recent years, but they were never based on any coherent models in the first place. There is no definite epoch where certain institutions universally exist. There is no singular environmental cause for certain social developments, and the most pernicious myth debunked is that there is development of specific social strata Or hierarchical institutions which are necessarily a consequence of social complexity,
0: urbanism, or
1: technology, including agriculture and other means of
0: production. There's no social strata or institutions which are necessarily a consequence of social complexity and so on. They are very strongly associated in the archaeological record. That's the same point that we were that we were making earlier a a few minutes ago. That doesn't mean that that has to always be the case. It just has almost always been the case in all the archaeological record that we have. Yes. It has almost always been that way. Like, by far, the vast majority, the bigger a population gets, the more you're going to have this, like, this social strata and hierarchy. That is almost always what has happened. There are exceptions, but it's almost always what has happened. So people who, who associate those things, they're not idiots, but there, there is a nuanced point there that it doesn't necessarily have to be a consequence of that increased population. That's a big nuance because that changes the way you view society. It, it, it really changes whether or not something is viewed as inevitable or predetermined versus something that we can have an influence on going forward in our own world. I keep coming back to this because that really is one of the most important points that I took away from the book. I have all kinds of, you know, quibbles with specifics in this book. There's there's so much that I that I could like bring up, but some some of that is kind of pedantic in relation to this main point that that Graeber and Wingro have. This assumption of predetermination based on such a singular influence of population density that as soon as societies get big enough they automatically become hierarchical that that there's no other way that that can happen it's an important point too It,
1: it reminds me of our first episode discussing max weber and how he was discussing determinism of the protestant ethic the ideas that we observed in the puritans especially And how these ideas essentially said there's nothing you can do about it, you're already going to go to hell or go to heaven, and you need to follow these sorts of ethics, but there's nothing you can do about it. These ideas, I think, were just as pernicious in some ways in that context as we're seeing in applying predeterminism to the sociological or anthropological or archaeological examination of
0: how the fuck do we get here and could these same conditions have led to something else we don't know you know if it's the proportion of the conditions in relation to one another or if there's something we didn't know about in addition to population density that leads to hierarchy in almost every case. We don't know. We have no idea. While
1: Graeber and Wengrow are crashing the anthropological and archaeological parties with the book, it's not the first time I've heard some of these arguments. Murray Bookchin discusses the emergence of hierarchy in his seminal 1982 book, The Ecology of Freedom, The Emergence and Dissolution of Hierarchy. Bookchin describes the prevailing Victorian-era narratives.
0: What accounts for these vast changes in humanity's development, aside from the meteoric impact of the great historical invasions? And were their darker, often bloody aspects the unavoidable penalties we had to pay for social progress? Our answers to these questions touch on one of the major social problematics of our time, the role of scarcity, reason, labor, and technics in wrenching humanity from its brutal animal world into the glittering light of civilization. Or, in Marxian terminology, from a world dominated by necessity to one dominated by freedom. My use here of the word dominated is not to be taken lightly. Its implications for Marxian theory will be examined later in this work. For the present, let me note that Enlightenment and, more pointedly, Victorian ideologies, the ideologies that Marx shared in their broad contours with liberal economists, explained man's ascent from Neolithic barbarism. To capitalism in strikingly similar ways these explanations are worth re-examining not so much to refute them but to place them in a larger perspective than 19th century social theory could possibly attain according to these views history's onward march from the stone age to the modern occurred primarily for reasons related to technological development the development of advanced agricultural techniques increasing material surpluses and the rapid growth of human populations. Without the increases in material surpluses and labor resources that Neolithic society first began to make possible, humanity could never have developed a complex economy and political structure. We owe the advent of civilization to the early arts of systemic food cultivation and increasingly sophisticated tools like the wheel, kiln, smelter, and loom. All these provided an increasing abundance of food, clothing, shelter, tools, and transportation. With this basic reserve of food and techniques, humanity acquired the leisure time to gain a greater insight into natural processes, and settled into sedentary life ways from which emerged our towns and cities, a large-scale agriculture based on grains, the plow, and animal power, and finally a rudimentary machine technology. Nature, so the social theorists of the past century held, is normally stingy, an ungiving and deceptive mother. She has favored humanity with her bounty only in a few remote areas of the world. Rarely has she been the giving nurturer created in distant times by mythopoic thought. The savage of Victorian ethnography must always struggle, or wrestle, to use Marx's term, with her to perpetuate life, which is ordinarily miserable and mercifully brief. There's Hobbes again. (laughs) Tolerable at times, but never secure and only marginally plentiful and idyllic. Humanity's emergence from the constructive world of natural scarcity has thus been perceived as a largely technical problem of placing the ungiving forces of nature under social command, creating and increasing surpluses, dividing labor, notably separating crafts from agriculture, and sustaining intellectually productive urban elites thus given the leisure time to think and administer society. These elites could create science, enlarge the entire sphere of human knowledge, and sophisticate human culture. Another author has some
1: similar things to say. James C. Scott in Against the Grain, A Deep History of the Earliest States, 2017.
0: From Thomas Hobbes to John Locke to Giambattista Vico, to Lewis Henry Morgan, to Friedrich Engels, to Herbert Spencer, to Oswald Spengler, to social Darwinist accounts of social evolution in general. The sequence of progress from hunting and gathering to nomadism to agriculture, to nomadism to agriculture, and from band to village to town to city, was settled doctrine. Such views nearly mimicked Julius Caesar's, Julius Caesar's, Evolutionary scheme from households to kindreds, to tribes, to peoples, to the state, a people living under laws, wherein Rome was the apex, and the Celts and the Germans ranged behind. Though they vary in detail, such accounts record the march of civilization conveyed by most pedagogical pedagogical <laughs> <laughs> pedagogical routines and imprinted on the brains of schoolgirls and schoolboys throughout the world. The move from one mode of subsistence to the next is seen as sharp and definitive. No one, once shown the techniques of agriculture, would dream of remaining a nomad or forager. Each step is presumed to represent an epoch-making leap in mankind's well-being. More leisure, better nutrition, longer life expectancy, and at long last, a settled life that promoted the household arts and the development of civilization. Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and our guest is James Scott, Sterling Professor of Political Science, Professor of Anthropology, and Co-Director of the Agrarian Studies Program at Yale University. The author of several books, including Seeing Like a State, Professor Scott's Research Concerns Political Economy, Comparative Agrarian Societies, Peasant Politics, Southeast Asia, theories of class relations and anarchism. Today we'll talk with Professor Scott about his newest book, The Art of Not Being Governed. It's the first ever examination of the volumes of literature on state-making that evaluates why people would deliberately remain stateless. Welcome, Professor Scott.
2: Happy to be here.
0: Let's begin with an overview of your book. Tell us about
2: it. Um, The book is a study of uh, perhaps 100 million people who <coughs> live in the highland areas between Southeast Asia, China, and India. So this is an area above, oh two hundred, two hundred and fifty 200, 250 meters uh, in the highlands of Vietnam, uh, all of Laos, a little corner of Cambodia, northern Thailand, northern Burma, the southern, uh, large southern provinces of China, Yunnan, Guangxi, and Guizhou, and also Northeastern India. And these are, this is an area where I argue uh, these hundred million or so people who speak many different languages, who belong to many different ethnic groups, they are often seen as primitive people who have always stayed, uh, who have never been, in a sense, touched by states. Uh, My argument is that these people for the last 2,000 years have been running away from states, uh, from taxes, from disease, from wars, from conscription, and over time they have moved into the hills uh, as states have displaced them, the Chinese state in particular, Mm -hmm. and that they have become ethnic groups in the hills. So they're not uh, primitive people. They're people who've chosen to move to the hills and stay in the hills in order to avoid the inconvenience of, of being incorporated as a state.
0: How did you come to write the book? What gave you the idea?
2: Uh, well, I've always, um, I'm a Southeast Asianist, so I work on Southeast Asia, in particularly Malaysia, and now I'm working on Burma. and I began
1: Indeed, this narrative was turned on its head on one of many occasions with the excavations at Göbleki Tepe, or Zirabresk, as it's known in Kurdish. From the dawn of
0: everything, in the 1990s, German archaeologists working on the plains northern frontier began uncovering extremely ancient remains at a place known locally as Göbekli Tepe. What they found has since be- what they found has since come to be regarded as an evolutionary conundrum. Conundrum. The main source of puzzlement is a group of 20 megalithic enclosures, initially raised there around 9000 BC and then repeatedly modified over many centuries. For everybody listening, you really should just go look at pictures of Gobekli Tepe. They're absolutely amazing. It is some of the most incredible stuff that you' ever imagined and then and then to you know people compare it to things like Stonehenge and stuff like that, except for the fact that it's 10,000 years older than Stonehenge. These people, in a sense, just came out
1: of the Ice Age.
0: The creation of these remarkable buildings implies strictly coordinated activity on a really large scale, even more so if multiple enclosures were constructed simultaneously, according to an overall plan, a current point of debate. But the larger question remains, who made them? While groups of humans not too far away had already begun cultivating crops at the time, to the best of our knowledge, those who built Gobekli Tepe had not. Yes, they harvested and processed wild cereals and other plants in season, but there is no compelling reason to see them as proto-farmers, or to suggest they had any interest in orienting their livelihoods around the domestication of crops. From James C. Scott again. An implicit assumption of the standard progress of civilization narrative is that once domesticated cereals and livestock were available, they would generate, more or less, automatically and rapidly, a fully formed agrarian society. As with any new technique, one might anticipate some hesitation as new subsistence routines were accommodated, perhaps even a millennium. But 4,000 years, or roughly 160 generations, is far more than a working out of the kinks.
1: Fresh paint on the hull of the same old vessel. The progressive civilization narrative seems to not only be ubiquitous, traversing across disciplines and centuries, but even dramatically different worldviews. The idea incorporates some form of the complex society concept, which describes the complexity of social organization in a linear progression from nomadic hunter-gatherer bands to segmentary societies, tribes, to chiefdoms to the highest stage of states, empires, and civilization.
0: Whoever is the most civilized, or consider themselves to be the most civilized, gets to decide what that means.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, Like, you know, the uh, the the quote that we read earlier that referenced Julius Caesar and his evolutionary scheme from households to kindreds to tribes to peoples of the state, wherein Rome was the apex, was their way of saying that they are superior to the Celts and the Germans and everybody else that they encountered. They, they consider themselves to be at the absolute pinnacle of human development. As much as they conceived of it, they could see that people were living in different conditions in different places. And because they had these enormous structures, this monumental architecture, this very complicated government and advanced militaries, They consider themselves to be superior or more advanced than those people around them. But this is really just a question of perspective. There were plenty of people who saw the Romans and thought that what they were doing was absolutely insane. Yeah, And they had no interest whatsoever in participating in it. They fought wars to maintain their independence from this Roman imperialism because they considered their own way of life to be better. Or at least they considered the freedom to continue living on their own terms to be better than to live as a Roman citizen.
1: I think that the most significant model of a superior civilization is the one that has the neatest hats.
0: Well, that that comes up for sure. Everybody gets (laughs) their own own special hats.
1: We can compare different civilizations by... By the neatness of everybody the
0: should go listen to Everybody should go listen to George Carlin and hear about the hats. <laughs> From the dawn of everything. For this reason, it might be useful to summarize the older scheme's basic sequence here. Banned societies. The simplest stage is still assumed to be made up of hunter-gatherers like the Kung or Hadza. Supposedly living in small, mobile groups of 20 to 40 individuals without any formal political roles and minimal division of labor. Such societies are thought to be egalitarian, effectively by default. Tribes. Societies like the Nuer, Dayaks, or Kayapo. Tribesmen are typically assumed to be horticulturalists, which is to say they farm but don't create irrigation works or use heavy equipment like plows. They are egalitarian, at least among those of the same age and gender. Their leaders have only informal, or at least no coercive, power. Tribes are typically arranged into the sort of complex lineage or totemic clan structures beloved of anthropologists. Economically, the central figures are big men. Such were typically found in Melanesia, responsible for creating voluntary coalitions of contributors, sponsor rituals and feasts. Ritual or craft specialism is limited and usually part-time. Tribes are numerically larger than bands, but settlements tend to be roughly of the same size and importance. Chiefdoms. While the clans of tribal society are all ultimately equivalent, in chiefdoms the kinship system becomes the basis for a system of rank with aristocrats, commoners, and even slaves. The shillic, natchez, or or calusa, are typically treated as chiefdoms. So are, say, Polynesian kingdoms or the lords of ancient Gaul. Intensification of production leads to a significant surplus, and classes of full-time craft and ritual specialists emerge, not to mention the chiefly families themselves. There is at least one level of settlement hierarchy, the chief's residence and everything else. And the main economic function of the chief is is redistributive. Redistributive redistributive, redistributive, pooling resources, often forcibly, and then doling them out to everyone, usually during spectacular feasts, states, much as already described, these tend to be characterized by intensive cereal agriculture, a legal monopoly on the use of force, professional administration, and a complex division of labor. Indeed, as much as
1: it has proliferated in anthropology and among social theorists up to the modern day, these narratives may no longer have the mark of describing civilized peoples and savages to contrast societies.
0: It has a similar plot. From the dawn of everything. One problem with evolutionism is that it takes ways of life that developed in symbiotic relation with each other and reorganizes them into separate stages of human history. By the late 19th century, it was becoming clear that the original sequence as developed by Turgot and others, hunting, pastoralism, agriculture, then finally industrial civilization, didn't really work. Yet at the same time, the publication of Darwin's theories meant that evolutionism became entrenched as the only possible scientific approach to history, or at least the only one likely to be given credence in universities. So the search was on for more workable categories. In his 1877 Ancient Society, Lewis Henry Morgan proposed a series of steps from savagery through barbarism to civilization, which was widely adopted in the new field of anthropology. Meanwhile, Marxists concentrated on forms of domination and the move out of primitive communism towards slavery, feudalism, and capitalism, to be followed by socialism, then communism. All these approaches were basically unworkable and eventually had to be thrown away as well. Since the 1950s, a body of neo-evolutionist theory has sought to define a new version of the sequence, based on how efficiently groups harvest energy from their environment based on how efficiently groups harvest energy from their environment. As we've seen, almost nobody today subscribes to this framework in its entirety. Indeed, whole volumes have been written taking it to task, or pointing out the many exceptions to its logic. We are all over that, and have moved on, would be the standard reaction of most anthropologists and archaeologists when confronted with such an evolutionary scheme today. But if our fields have moved on... They have done so, it seems, without putting any alternative vision in place. The result being that almost anyone who is not an archaeologist or anthropologist tends to fall back on the older scheme when they set out to think or write about world history on a large canvas. Here, uh, Grayber and Wingro are directly talking to popular authors that write about human history and prehistory. They're not talking about professionals. Yeah. The professionals who are writing in journals and largely not for popular consumption but for other professionals have very definitely moved on. Yeah. That message however has not yet translated to the world at large where where we have somebody like Harari who is professing a view of the world very similar to Rousseau's and we have a person like Steven Pinker who is professing a world a vision of the world uh, and Jared Diamond visions of the world that are very similar to what Hobbes had Th- these these ideas have con- have continued to travel forward through time into our modern world through these types of authors largely it's only authors that are themselves not archaeologists and anthropologists <laughs> i <laughs> it's, i think Ger- of- i mean Jared Diamond is a geographer which is not a bad thing. Uh, you know, a geographer is not making maps or something like that. This is somebody who's focused on how people are on, on societies in different regions. And Steven Pinker is what, a psychologist? I think that's that the case. That's not necessarily a bad position to be commenting on on modern society either. And Harari is a historian, so obviously he's in a good position to see these things from a bird's eye view. As much research has been put into the works written by these people, they still tend to fall back on these previous narratives that have just been recycled since the Victorian period. I think of the distinction when I look at
1: science communicators, where we have some science communicators who are really excellent at translating what is otherwise unreadable jargon and unreadable texts to the layperson to a popular audience that can connect these two worlds in a meaningful way. I think of Carl Sagan when I say that. Uh, And then we have some others who also do that, but maybe don't necessarily have the same background But in some of these cases, what's being put forward by some of these science communicators has to be simplified in a certain way. So what gets pumped out on a nice uh, Discovery Channel 30-minute episode of something is not the same thing as a peer-reviewed paper on how lions are behaving. Right. It's not the same thing.
0: Graber and Winrow are commenting on this directly when they say that archaeologists and anthropologists have moved on and that they're overall that when it comes to these these uh evolutionary frameworks for a human society, but yet they have not provided an alternative model that puts everything into place. The reason that they haven't done that is that largely. As an overarching schema, this evolutionary model is still in place with the provision that there's always exceptions to this model and that they those exceptions are definitely allowed for. They're not resisted. When we have these models, it is always a question of resolution. If we're going to come up with some sort of a schema, then we necessarily are going to be omitting details, so that we can create some sort of a a general structure of things. And as you get in closer and more and more details are added in specific instances or at a particular dig or in a particular ethnographic study, then we're going to see exceptions to these rules. But that's not how models work. (laughs) You know, that's, that's not how like an over an overarching model works. It doesn't, it doesn't work by including every single detail all the time. It works by eliminating details and then seeing some, you know, seeing some sort of a uh, general structure that is going to be in place. A simplified pattern. Yeah, it's a, it is exactly what it is. It is a simplified pattern. So the point is taken that Graeber and Wingrow are making, but at the same time, I don't think that there is a problem so much with the fields of archaeology and anthropology as much as their ability to communicate these things. What we're missing in archaeology and anthropology, and, and I think Graber and Wingro, I mean Graber were he's to be still alive, what at least what Wingro is doing is that he's filling he wants to fill this role of a Carl Sagan. I mean, the thing about Carl Sagan and, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson as well, is that Carl Sagan was a cosmologist and, and Neil deGrasse Tyson is an astronomer, you know, so they are actually participants in the field that they're publicly commenting about. They they were active participants. And, you know, in the case of Neil deGrasse Tyson, he still is an active participant in this, in this field of study. That he is communicating to the general public. There isn't really that person in anthropology or archaeology. Or those people. It wouldn't be really the same person. In the case of this book, it's two different people. You can't really be a specialist in both of these things. And not not and keep on keep on top of all the stuff that's going on. There's no way. But there really isn't that person. And I think Graber and Wingro were Positioning themselves to try to be that person, that popular communicator, you know. So we kind of still have one for archaeology, and 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 David Wingro, and now we're looking for another anthropologist. (laughs) (laughs) So if anybody's looking to apply, right? If you're an anthropologist (laughs) and you want to communicate to the public, you probably should start because the fact that you're not doing it is why we're in this mess. (laughs) Fucker.
1: (laughs) Progressive Civilization as the Mythos of Colonialism. The variations on the story have been used to mythologize the history as told by the party, state, or society that prevailed at a given time and place. The narrative of progressive society in various forms incorporates the evaluation of complexity with value judgments, moral or as a consideration of the quality of the society considered, ranking of societies based on modes of production, and describing certain institutions as either inevitable or as part of an epoch of human history. These value judgments, based on variables such as technology, mode of production, and so forth, are typically also tied to the prevailing institutions. The institution of the state, in societies with nation-states, shockingly, ends up as the final stage. Meanwhile, people in societies considered in a lower stage of development are at best condescended to in academic spheres or, more informally, in popular worldviews, and at worst, colonized or exterminated in genocide. The story is told by brutal European imperialists and colonizers invading Africa and the Americas to civilize savages, and to the westward march of manifest destiny. We might even consider U.S. aggression in places like Iraq to spread democracy as another variation on spreading civilization by 19th century European empires. The story is told in the dialectical materialism of Marx and Engels as well. That last point is rather important. The narrative given by Marx and Engels describes stages of history from primitive communism to slavery society to feudalism to capitalism to socialism to communism. The ideas build on the same narrative described, but focus on modes of production determining the values, culture, and social organization of society and its changes, rather than the great men theory or the just-so stories of these stages based on increased population. Of course, historical changes are described as a consequence of class antagonism between those who own the means of production and those who are forced to work for them. The primitive communism stage is essentially the same narratives about pre-agricultural societies. The slavery society might be comparable to the ideas of early city-states after the emergence of agriculture relying heavily on slavery. The feudal society describes systems of land management, nobles, and serfs chiefly focused on European societies. Then, we get to the last three. Capitalism, socialism, then communism. Capitalism describes the rise of a new merchant class that displaces noble classes while giving rise to distinctly different institutions of nation-states that manage these class antagonisms. As a matter of fact, they really go into depth talking about this point and the definition of what is a state in the 10th chapter. I don't want to get into it too terribly much right now, uh, because... It will derail us a little bit from what I'm saying here, but it is important to note that this is one of the key features of this idea of how these things progressed. Marx defined the state as an institution that was there to manage these class antagonisms. And that is relatively important for what we're about to suggest here. The socialist stage here is a different use of the term than mentioned earlier. Here, it means a stage where the working classes displace the ruling capitalist classes, while the institution of the state is changed from facilitating the interests of the capitalist class to being a dictatorship of the proletariat, utilizing the monopoly of violence of the state against counter-revolution while organizing the progress to communism with the other organs of the state. It's important to note that when we say the term the dictatorship of the proletariat, Uh the way that that phrase is used, the, the terminology gets a bit lost in time and translation. It's not necessarily meant dictatorship as in an autocracy, although it can be. What's meant by dictatorship in this context is the... Control of one group over another group. That's a much better way to understand the meaning of this. So this could be a form of government. This could be a class that rules over another class. We could understand it in a number of different ways. But in this way of understanding that term that is so widely used, we shouldn't universally take it to mean dictatorship like Saddam Hussein dictator. Necessarily. Here, Marx is not nearly as elaborate on the details as he is in his analysis of capitalism. Some have interpreted this as being much closer to the Paris Commune than a highly centralized state. Some have interpreted quite the opposite. And even on that point, Marx and Engels discussed the Paris Commune at some length, but the reality of the Paris Commune was fairly decentralized, and it couldn't be confused with an incredibly centralized state by any stretch. Finally, communism, a stateless, classless, moneyless society, will eventually come out of this socialist state. The economy will transition from each according to their ability, to each according to their contribution, to from each according to their ability, to each according to their need. Marx and Engels describe the state withering away out of its own lack of necessity, after classes are abolished and giving way to communist society, they're not too specific as to how this works either. <laughs> I, think, I think the critiques of Bakunin at that time are rather relevant. Marx and Engels, respectively, said, no, 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 all we have to do is seize the state in the name of the workers. And Bakunin said that will just become state capitalism, and it'll be worse." and Marx and and and, and um, Engels said, "No, well, it'll be fine. It'll be a worker state because we're going to call it a worker state, and then it'll disappear voluntarily because it's no longer needed after we get rid of the pesky bourgeoisie
0: Those bourgeoisie God damn them, <laughs> those scamps.
1: this is where we find lenin a few decades later in 1917 his ideas of vanguardism democratic centralism and about the dictatorship of the proletariat would turn this narrative into a state that would change the 20th century as soon as he took power in the october coup from the provisional government He immediately disbanded the Soviets, factory councils. The councils were the organs of workers' control, so in effect, this was the destruction of socialism. The Bolsheviks set about setting up a powerful state bureaucracy with all the previous czarist forms of oppression and more. Lenin, from the chief task of our day.
0: State capitalism would be a step forward as compared with the present state of affairs in our Soviet republic. If in approximately six months' time state capitalism became established in our republic, this would be a great success and a sure guarantee that within a year, socialism will have gained a permanently firm hold and will have become invincible in this country. No one, I think, in studying the question of the economic system of Russia has denied its transitional character. Nor, I think, has any communist denied that the term Soviet Socialist Republic implies the determination of the Soviet power to achieve the transition to socialism, and not that the existing economic system is recognized as a socialist order.
1: From Attacks in Kind
0: While the revolution in Germany is still slow in coming forth, our task is to study the state capitalism of the Germans, to spare no effort in copying it, and not shrink from adopting dictatorial methods to hasten the copying of Western culture by Barbarian Russia, without hesitating to use barbarous methods in fighting barbarism.
1: Lenin created a form of state capitalism where the role of the capitalist class and the state are (coughs) both in one institution, in large part because he believed that Russia, being largely similar to the feudalist stage as described by Marx, needed to go through the capitalist stage before it could move into the socialist stage. Since Bolsheviks won out and were the first nominally socialist state to take power, the debates in the socialist world quickly turned to Russia, as the model and the voices of more mainstream Marxism, like the likes likes of Rosa Luxemburg and others, fell by the wayside. Marxism-Leninism is a term coined by Stalin to mythologize these ideas, and it became official state doctrine. Nominally, socialist and communist states would take power throughout the 20th century, while the whole of post-war powers aligned, post-World War II that is, aligned along these lines between this state capitalism with a red flag and capitalist countries. Obviously, none of these states have withered away into communism. The progressive civilization narrative would be a key part of the ideologies of nominally socialist states that transformed global political power in the 20th century, including the imperialism of the USSR, and shifted the ideologies of the socialist world to a field dominated by strains of the same Leninist core. What we can see is that since the emergence of these narratives in the Enlightenment, there is an effort to ascribe the specific dominant institutions to the highest stage of development. From this view, those societies with different modes of production and social organization are undeveloped, and in need of the paternalistic development of more advanced societies that host these institutions in the most refined forms. That's what we were talking about just before.
0: That's exactly what we're talking about, yeah. It's it's that it's that that subjective perspective on things that there are just people that aren't quite as developed as us we we have i mean you're about to you're about to talk about this but this language that until very recently you know was widely used of describing first second and third world nations and then you know with that you know people realize that there's there's some issue with that type of descriptive mechanism then we go into developed nations and less developed nations and underdeveloped nations as if there's some level of development that needs to exist or should exist all of these assumptions are built into this terminology now people who are critical of the way some nations like specifically the united states and the united kingdom have developed will refer to them as overdeveloped nations (laughs) it just it doesn't I, but but there's and yes, so they're 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 deploying some criticism about the state of the society in the United States and the United Kingdom, but at the same time, they're really just redeploying that same structure as a form of criticism. They're and saying it no 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 back
1: to the same dual uh dualism between barbarian civilization. I'm sorry, barbarianism and civilization. <clears throat> mm-hmm. we can easily observe the exploitation of so-called third-world nations being described as developing these underdeveloped nations, underdeveloped because they don't possess the capital and specifically the fictitious capital in certain financial instruments to not find the wealth from their labor and resources flowing outwards towards developed countries. Such arrangements (laughs) are often described as
0: investing in these countries Right, every time the IMF or the World Bank gets involved. <laughs> <laughs> we call it an investment. And really well like what it really is is just a cash grab. Yeah. yeah. They they they, di- they just like they, they hook onto them like a leech or a vampire and just start draining from the economy until the whole thing falls apart. All you you only need to look at uh like say Greece in the seventies you look at Argentina. I was in the just going to say Argentina. That were <laughs> that ended up fucking well. Like Portugal was another one. Like you know these countries, they they manage, they they make the mistake of taking these loans from these international banking consortiums, and it all it's all great at first until the whole damn thing falls apart. And you know who doesn't have to bear the brunt of it? The people who actually signed for the loans.
2: Yeah, those are the people a lot of who times manage there's to there's some go... kind of an
1: autocrat that is yeah. either uh, already on their own private island and far away from the troubles,
0: and because these these international banking consortiums they start imposing all of these austerity measures, and then the next thing you know, you have a privatized water system and like in Bolivia, like in Bolivia, ex- With <laughs> that's exactly the example. That's exactly the example I was thinking of, and. Then you know, and, and the entire boy. Time, these the, people
1: sure the, are uppity about this whole water thing. What's going I know, on? <laughs> I, like, meanwhile,
0: the 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 average the average experience of a citizen of this country just continues to get shittier and shittier day by day.
1: <laughs> Fuck. I mean, it's it's a, even related to some of the things that we were discussing with Kazakhstan in the previous episode.
0: The the the. This really not in the ties same, not in the same way,
1: not in the same way. Like no, no, totally no, no. Same like, kind I, I, of I, international plunder.
0: Yeah, the, exactly. the The point with Kazakhstan is 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 definitely well taken. What I was going to say though is that this this commentary right now is exactly why we decided to cover Graeber and Wingro's book on this show, because this show is talking about things that don't seem like they have a direct effect but yet have a rippling effect and sometimes for generations on everybody's way of life and outlook on the world this the the models that we have for ancient civilizations and and prehistoric humans directly reflects how we see our own potential going forward that's why we're talking about these things the this you know and the as As Jules just said, we can easily observe the exploitation of so-called third world nations being described as developing these underdeveloped nations underdeveloped because they don't possess the capital and specifically the fictitious fictitious specifically the fictitious capital debt in certain financial instruments to not find the wealth from their labor and resources flowing outwards toward developed countries. We can only do this we can only look at the world that way which we have for decades and decades and decades now this is american imperialism and british imperialism because we have this social evolutionary structure of progr- of humans progressing from savagery to civilization it is the same structure we've just renamed the categories there's no difference that's why we're talking about all this stuff. That's why Graeber and Winningrow's book is important. It makes the explanation for
1: exploitation, colonialism, empires, so much easier and palatable. When you can think exactly. something as, oh, well, that's inevitable. They, they'll they get here with us eventually.
0: We just have to give them time and maybe help them out by investing in their country. Right. And, and not only does it make it palatable and understandable in in the case of exploiting the resources and the peoples of these other nations, but it is exactly the same line of thinking that allowed us to have a transatlantic slave trade it's it allowed it allowed the 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 United States to execute a generation long genocidal plan to eradicate native americans it is exactly the same kind of thinking because we were in i don't i say we because i am an american they those americans at that time had this outlook that they were more advanced and therefore more deserving of the natural resources of the of that of north america than the people who are already inhabiting it because they were civilized and the Native Americans were not, yeah. by, their de- by their definitions, using exactly these types of models. They were able to justify these actions. People do exactly the same thing with, with any, any genocide has some sort of a model in place. Anti-Semitism has a model in place that allows for anti-Semitism. It makes it palatable. It makes it easy to hate Jews. It makes it easy to think that they are responsible for all your problems. Look at the anti-Semitic types of, uh, types of images that came out of, out of Germany in the 1920s. And, and you'll see the same, the same types of, of anti-Semitic Semitic images coming out of the U.S. in the 1920s. Henry Ford was famous for this stuff. He had a publication that talked about how Jews were destroying everything. This t- this allows people to uh create a caricature of an entire group of people or in some cases a nation, and decide that they're barbarians, they're savages they're somehow less than human, and because of that, because of this great thing that we've accomplished, whoever happens to be the you know the the group that has the most power they' they're able to say we need to protect all of these important developments that we've made all of this thing all of these things that we've built these institutions sometimes these physical buildings from these barbarians and as soon as you put things in terms like that you can do anything you want to a group of people because they're they're less than human at this point
1: yeah and we can we can see even in some of the terminology that we use for to describe these things, vandals, barbarians, yeah, these uh slaves and notably Slavs,
0: these terms didn't come from uh, nowhere. Uh, so, I'm glad you just said Slavs in relation to slaves. It's another issue that we have in our civilized nation of the United States is that people have terrible educations, they don't know anything about anything. Vandals was the literal name of a group of people. That was what they were called. It was a society. Their name was Vandals. <laughs> and just exactly the same Do you mean the band, there was, called, there was another group called the Goths. And then there was the Visigoths. But these See, were specific tribes. See,
1: the Visigoths were more, of a, uh, more of a post-punk... Banned. Yeah. than the, the Goths
0: band. were the one with the eyeliner. Yeah. <laughs> but these were actual groups of people that the Romans encountered. These were their names. They became synonymous with what they represented. Barbarians comes from a Greek word barbarous, which means people with beards. The Greeks were talking about the Persians. Because they considered themselves to be superior in their civilization, that connotation of lesser than 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 another group, is what traveled forward, not the beard part. The only beard part we have left is going to a barber. <laughs> that's, the, that's the last of that word in the English language. The rest of it means uncivilized or savage. But the Greeks were really just talking about people with beards. And they also happened to not like the Persians very much because the Persians kept invading. There's no
1: reason to believe that complexity in social organization is tied to specific types of institutions, such as the state or capitalism. We can examine the complexity of modes of production or customs and mores in a culture, but it's just not accurate to understand human epochs in such a way. Massive forms of social organization can have direct democracy, and they can have authoritarian forms small groups can exhibit the same. Democracy and egalitarianism are not necessarily consequences of longevity of a society or modes of production, nor is imperialism a consequence of social complexity. In the words of Murray Bookchin, the assumption that what currently exists must necessarily exist is the acid that corrodes all visionary thinking.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Wet Wired Podcast. You can hear the rest of our conversation about David Graeber and David Wingrove's book, The Dawn of Everything, on our premium feed. If you'd like to support the show and the work we're doing, you can support us on Patreon. We have a limited number of True Believer subscriptions available. You can also show your love and help us grow the show by telling a friend or sharing an episode on social. Wet Wired is on Twitter at Wet Wired Pod. You can find me at Sean Ondas and Jules is at Julian Hooligan.
2: Um, thank you. Actually, the question relates partly to what you were just saying about the difference between early states and states in the last couple of hundred years. And um, the question is really: um, Has the work that
0: you've been doing recently made modern states look more weird or less weird? Um, in the sense that social science is premised on the idea that modernity is some kind of distinctive rupture, and that what we're doing when we're doing social science is some kind of study of the modern. So, in that sense. Um, all of these interesting questions about the relationships between states and populations are opened up but does looking backwards make if you like the high modernism that you've explored in in earlier work look very distinctive or actually something that states were always kind of doing
2: it, that's a job i'd be happy to turn over for to someone else to figure out uh in in, in the in the sense that it does so i did ask myself how come so Homo sapiens has been around for about 200,000 years. The last 50,000 years uh, out of Africa, by and large. Uh, and the first states, just as tiny little dots on the horizon appear maybe 6,000, 5,000, 6,000 years ago, about 4,000 BC, you can say, okay, these might be states, right? That's really kind of late in the game. And so, and and by the way, Towns exist long before states. Domesticated crops exist long, at least four thousand years. And so the question is, the, the old narrative is that oh my God, once we could domesticate plants, uh, we couldn't wait to settle down. I mean, there's the, the the narrative is, the the purpose of plants. Finally, we were we we were tired of wandering the world, and finally we uh, domesticated. Uh, well, it that's it also insane in the sense that how many brutal struggles have been fought to force people who were mobile to settle down, right, at the point of a gun, Native Americans uh, among them in the reservations uh, and so on. So the, the kind of assumption that the sedentary community is something that Homo sapiens always secretly longed for and that certain technical uh, advances like domestication of plants and animals made this possible seems to me to be not correct but it does seem to me I've I've wondered a bit but I think it, part of my question was isn't it strange that we came to live in great heaps of people and crops right and domesticated animals and governed by these <laughs> strange institutions that we call states and now today the nation-state it's like a traveling module and the IMF and the World Bank and the WHO and the UN are busy codifying standard sets of laws and currency regulations and property rules and land titling and so on in order to create a kind of standardized nation-state mantra and that's weird Uh, in the sense that is that the only form of human political community that we can come up with? Well, that's pathetic.